But that business, it did close to seven figures last year. But again, I just didn't like it. Like I realized I don't want to be Grant Cardone. I don't need as, you know, a ton of money. I'm happy to just keep seeing things go up, but I don't need to like, you know, make money if I feel like I'm sacrificing my peace of mind. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on John Farber, who hit financial freedom at 27 through a combination of house hacking, Airbnb, and a high-paying job. But before we get into his story, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody, this was uh, one of those weekends where we just kept it pretty simple, stayed here in Austin. For those who kind of listen every week and hear some of the check-ins, you may know that I was in Vegas for a week for work, and then I went to Boston for Cody's wedding, then straight to New York for a week for work. So I've been on the road a lot, and with that comes a lot of eating out. And so I'm actually super happy to just kind of be at home, eating normal, just my grilled chicken and veggies and getting back on a, a normal schedule. I did do a rip dip event. Um, it's kind of like a little wellness event slash volleyball tournament. Set up a little table, sold some rip dip. And then the big highlight, though, was football's back. So Cody doesn't know anything about college football. I know, but um, there were some pretty big games on this weekend, especially for the city of Austin. So it's fun to get to get out in the city and see everybody celebrating their win over Alabama. Sorry, Alabama fans. But yeah, it was a nice weekend at home. And I know we've talked about it before, but. Sometimes these kind of calm weekends where you're just maybe getting some stuff done at the house, but you're not like out doing anything too crazy are some of the most rewarding. And we are gearing up for another trip at the end of the month. So we won't be sitting for too long. Be going with the parents out to Yellowstone and Tetons and Jackson Hole. We're doing like eight days out west. So just gearing up for that. How about you, Cody? Fun stuff, man. We are also gearing up for a big trip leaving next week. We're going to be leaving on Wednesday the 20th for kind of a month-long Europe tour. We'll talk more about that as I'm over there. But you're right on the football front, Justin. I am definitely not a college football fan. I don't think anybody really up in the North is because we don't have any good teams. People don't (laughs) take college football too seriously up here. But I am the proud manager of two fantasy teams. So been rooting for my teams. We did our drafts last week. And now it's, uh, it's one of the few things where I'm like spending probably an inordinate amount of time and also betting two non-fi things that you know, I'm, I'm going to give myself the pass on them because they're a lot of fun. I do it with my buddies. I have like one college group and one high school group, and I have like these two different fantasy teams I manage. But the big thing for me this past weekend was a half marathon. So did it in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's called Run to the Rock. It started at Plymouth Rock. It ended at Plymouth Rock. If you've ever been to Massachusetts, this was actually my first time as a Massachusetts local that I've ever been to Plymouth Rock, and I thought it was going to be this massive rock. Like I thought the pilgrims for sure were going to pick out this like huge iconic boulder. No, Plymouth Rock is like seven feet wide. It has this little etching on it that says like 1620. It is nothing special. I feel bad for the people who come up to Boston or Massachusetts and visit Plymouth Rock thinking that they're going to see this amazing massive rock it's it's kind of small i don't know why the pilgrims picked that one to be the rock the thing that people go and visit but that's what (laughs) they did but so the annoying thing about this half marathon so i was training i was all excited i'd been running on the track side note don't practice for a marathon or half marathon on a track because it doesn't prepare you for elevation and this race for some reason had way more elevation than i was anticipating but actually got an email today so this is a couple days we're recording this a couple days after the race I got an email today. They're like, hey, sorry, guys. Like, We accidentally marked the course incorrectly. So the half marathon was actually a bit longer than it was supposed to be. And the 10K and the 5K that were going on, they were a bit shorter than they were supposed to be. So looking on my Strava app, that's like the app I track my runs, I ended up running 14.2 miles. Like, I was so gassed. I was so mad at the end of this run. And fortunately, I did finish it. Fortunately, I did make it to the rock. But man, my legs are still tired recording this almost four days later. But enough about unimpressive rocks. Let's talk about our impressive guest for today, John Farber. So John is someone who I've been following on Instagram, Twitter for a while. He's pretty prolific on social media. And what really caught my attention was this guy has just built systems for everything. And as an entrepreneur myself, I love to see people 
who figure out a way to build systems and then use those systems to scale. So he built systems for his house hacking method. He built systems for Airbnb. Then he had this whole coaching thing going on. He built systems to scale up in his job. This guy has just like got everything down to a T. Now he has like a whole team of VAs that are doing all sorts of different tasks for him. He has these like SOPs, standard operating procedures. This guy's like a well-oiled machine. What I really like though is what these systems allow him to do. It's not that he's working 80-hour weeks. Like He has a ton of stuff going on, but this guy is spending half of the year in Colombia and golfing and doing all this stuff. Like He's not working that hard. And that's not a slight to John at all. It's just a testament to if you build good processes, if you build good systems, if you know what inputs are going to get your desired outputs, then you can design your dream life. And one of the things I love about this episode, Cody, and just house hacking in general, is it's one of those that has a much lower barrier to entry, right? Like you, everyone needs a place to live anyway. And now you're talking about getting access to mortgages that are very small amounts down. You've got other people obviously paying that mortgage for you, but you've also got a place to live. So it's kind of like a two for one situation that you don't have to come up with a bunch of capital to get into. You're getting to kind of spread out some of the expenses. So I think house hacking is one of the most approachable ways that someone who's thinking about getting into real estate could possibly choose. And John does a great job of walking us through his path towards doing that. We think you're going to love this episode. And if you want to find even more information about John, where to follow along with him, or maybe share this episode with a friend who could be interested in something like house hacking, you can do all that over at thefyshow.com slash John. That's thefyshow.com slash J-O-N. Take it away, John. I am Jewish. So I think that actually plays into my money beliefs. Like my family was always pretty frugal, not entrepreneurial, but hardworking and frugal. And that was definitely instilled in me from a young age. My dad owned a small business, an eyeglass store, a few eyeglass stores. My mom was an interior designer and hard work was always the theme, not entrepreneurial work. So my mom did, a, would say, a really good job like ingraining this of if we wanted something as a kid, she would never just outright buy for us. If it was shoes or a phone or like a TV, a bobblehead, whatever. It would be she'd make us earn half like through allowance or doing stuff around the house. And then she'd buy the other half or maybe even like 70, 30. It was never really just straight up, hey, can I have this? Like those type of purchases were always the result of gifts like birthday or like holidays or that methodology. I never realized until looking back that that definitely did shape my view of money, of making and saving money. And when I was 13 or 14, I remember she like sort of made us, I wouldn't even say like encouraged it. It was like, you kind of need to do this. And I don't remember really fighting it, but she made me and my brother get jobs at a grocery store. My brother was like a stalker and I was a bagger. I think at 13, that definitely shaped me and definitely made me realize like how to save, how to buy. And just like the value of things that I learned early on. Now I've learned more and more with like tenants and other parts of businesses that, you know, if you don't own it or pay for yourself, you don't really care. It's like, I forget the expression. If you don't pay, you don't pay attention, you know, just like how to value things. And I think over time that developed into different channels. I did get away from like making money as my main goal for a little while. I could just touch on this, maybe come back to it later. But like, I thought I was going to maybe try professional golf for a while. And that didn't really require like money. Well, I didn't think it did. I realized now it required a <laughs> lot of money, but at the time I wasn't so focused on it. But anyway, that like definitely impacted my saving and spending. And then I'll stop after this, but like, yeah, this is probably bad, but like I wanted to make money in different ways. So I started caddying a lot. And then I actually was like even booking for a little while because I was like, this is going to be, I didn't want to like deal drugs. I knew people were doing that. And I was like, that sounds really sketchy, <laughs> but like, taking some like bets on sports and stuff. Like I always felt like I had money growing up through caddying, booking, working, and I could always save it. I didn't really spend often. Like that has definitely carried over being a minimalist and I'll spend money on business, but I will spend very little money on like my own stuff, like clothing or personal food, whatever. Like I'm, I'm pretty minimalistic when it comes to that. And I know you said that maybe there wasn't a ton of entrepreneurial talk going on, but if your dad owned a couple stores and your mom's an interior designer, which I don't know the situation, but a lot of times, you know, you're kind of working for yourself. It seems like you could have had two parents who were working for themselves or at least getting to really drive their own day to day. Do you think that that had any kind of influence into eventually wanting to run your own thing and not work for someone else? 
In a rebellious way, yes, but not in a direct way. Because even though they sort of did those things that were entrepreneurial, they did those things that were sort of entrepreneurial. It was like my dad's was almost like franchise model. My mom's was four companies, but entrepreneurial. But for me, they didn't want either of us to do anything entrepreneurial. It was interesting. Maybe just they saw the challenge of it, or maybe they thought there were safer paths. But for both of us, they just wanted us to be either teachers or accountants. And I knew I didn't like either of those things. And just out of like, sort of, yeah, rebellion nature and just not wanting to do those things, I sought out other things. And then I had a strange progression, but it led me into just meeting some people that were doing sales and it seemed like they were making a lot of money. And I did sales growing up for like different types of things. And I realized I could do it. I didn't need like a trade. I didn't need like a specialty that I just had my skills of like talking to people, you know, having energy, all that I could do it. And it led into that. But they were really actually disappointed when I didn't become a teacher or an accountant. Like that took years of actually kind of proving to them that these other things I was doing weren't like failures before they were, I think like that rhetoric pat on the back. I think it came around, but it was not originally what they wanted for me at all, which is kind of weird, but yeah. So did you end up going to college? I'm guessing your parents wanted you to go to college. They probably wanted you to get the master's degree and you know get the really safe and stable yeah. the job. Did you end up going to college at all? And then... Yeah, I got into golf, which had a big impact on going to college because like playing junior golf and sports, like the goal was just to get a scholarship or playing college. So that's what led me to go into college. I probably still would have, but it would have been a very different experience. But for me, that was really high on a pedestal to try to play golf in college. So I went to Hofstra, which is in Long Island, and played golf there. And that was a great experience. But I wasn't really like business or monetary like thinking until I was a senior and it was coming to an end. And I realized I wasn't going to do the professional golf thing. And I was like, what am I going to do? And then started to think more about like money and taking life more seriously. But I did go to college and yeah, it was really more to play golf. That was like what I was excited about in college, you know, to play and travel and all that. And so with that being said, you want to be a professional golfer. You don't end up being a professional golfer. I see you still golf all the time. Maybe we'll circle back to that. You were just telling me before we hit go, you, you play six days a week. What did life look like? What did you just hop straight into that sales role that you were just telling us about and start making a bunch of money right away? Or I was conflicted actually out of college because I did sort of get an entrepreneurial bug through the way that I got my job. So I didn't have any offers to work out of college because I had no internships and I didn't really have great grades because I still for three out of the four years thought I was going to do something in the golf industry. But I had enough people in the golf industry by the time I was a senior say like, don't do this. This isn't the path. Like long hours, not a lot of money. And it's maybe just an overrated type of like glamorized thing. So I was always like pretty one track focus when I got my mind into something. So I was like, all right, I think I can get a job just by reaching out to people because this cold like application process was really annoying to me. So I just started to kind of come up with this like system of messaging people on LinkedIn. And I became like a LinkedIn like terrorist with it. I was just messaging as many people as I could every day. I think I bought Navigator and I sort of developed this system that then I was like helping other kids with in college at the time. But it was how I got my job. I was just messaging people that I either had the like similar backgrounds to, went to the same college. Maybe they said golf somewhere in their profile. They were in sales. Maybe they grew up on Long Island. And I would just reach out to those people. I'd reach out to the people around those people. I just started my search with like best places to work. And then through that, I met some people that went to Hofstra a few years ahead of me that were doing sales enterprise technology companies like Oracle and SAP and Nutanix, places like those. And they were telling me like, you don't have to be that smart to do this. You can make a lot of money. You have flexibility. And I was thinking about it. Like it could be a vehicle. I didn't know for sure if I wanted to do sales. It was like Wolf of Wall Street just came out. And I was like, all right, that's interesting too. Like, you know, maybe through that got a bunch of interviews and then a bunch of offers. And I actually never had to apply to any of the jobs. I ended up taking a job with someone. I got connected to the vice chairman at this company. It was a 12,000 person company. This guy had a really cool story. I really just messaged him on LinkedIn and I got his phone number because I read an article about him that he played golf with Tiger Woods and Warren Buffett once. There was a Forbes article about him. I was like, 
this guy seems great. You know, I was just so like young and naive. I was so like green. And I was just like, why wouldn't this guy talk to me? And just like that attitude, what do I have to lose? And I did that so much, but he kind of became my first mentor. And I met him at his office and he said, you should take this job. I'll make sure that you get a good start and all that. Yeah. So I did that out of college, but I was torn. I really thought I had something with like maybe consulting or packaging the system to help other people get jobs out of college. But I realized for me, and this is why real estate was good for me too, a few years later, but I realized I really like to do things where I can do them like really safely or they feel safely. It doesn't feel like it's completely like an entire like unknown zero to a hundred vehicle at once. I like to do things where I can kind of do it as a side hustle, build it up and develop it before feeling like I have to kind of step out fully into it. That's kind of how I did it later on leaving my job too. But anyway, I, I don't know. I still think about that, but that's how I got the job and kind of like progressed from college into working at this first company called NetApp. And I moved to North Carolina and that's kind of then what led into like real estate investing because everything's so cheap down there compared to where I grew up in New York. But I'll just pause there. That was like, you know, the exit of college. And it was just like a weird six month period where things changed so quickly for me. But, you know, it, it actually was fun and it worked out. You just mentioned like it was fun. That's kind of what I was going to ask is like when you stepped into the sales role at NetApp, what was that like? Did it turn out to be better, worse than you thought it was going to be? And then I guess a, like a kind of a follow up secondary question is a lot of people talk about how powerful it is to learn the skill of sales and just kind of curious what your feedback is on that experience. It did feel fun. I do have a skill, I guess, of like kind of convincing myself things are fun sometimes, even when they're not. And for whatever reason, I was able to psych myself into it at the time. I think I do know the reason like my family actually at the time had a little bit of like a financial hardship. And it kind of like woke me up to just realizing I needed to be more serious and try to like take advantage of some of these things. So when I moved to North Carolina, I looked at it like I was on deployment. I was like, I'm going to only have one focus. I used to be kind of an idiot too, like partying. And like, I was just not into like business and making money. I was more into like partying and golf and just like a funny combination. But I cut out all that. I even stopped playing golf for two years. I was just focused on trying to climb the corporate ladder. And it did feel fun to me. And it felt exciting that... I thought I had this opportunity. Like when I went into this, I thought I was going to become the CEO of NetApp. Like my mentor was the vice chairman. Like he was one of the founders of the company. I thought I had to like live up to that expectation a little bit. And I wanted people to know that too. Like I even like embraced that. Like I was always the first person at the office. I'd be there at like 7.30, total hard move. I was just like embracing it. And I really wanted to be the best. Like I really just had this spark. I don't know. I think it really was because of the financial hardship for my family. But like, I was like, hardcore Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, Darren Hardy path, like compound effect, just everything. And it helped and it worked. Because again, I wasn't like a standout student or anything. But I was an SDR. I was a cold caller. That was the first job out of college. And I really did like it. It was a cool environment for us. Like it was 25 kids from all over the country, kind of like college 2.0 in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2015. So it was fun. It was a good work environment. And I enjoyed it. As for like the skill of sales, 100%. Like it's the easiest skill I think to learn that can make the most money in the shortest period of time. That sounds really easy, but you need to then deal with the hard parts of it too, like rejection and feeling stupid. And, you know, some people get over that. Some people don't. But ultimately, it's a skill that served me way like since then. Not that NetApp had such a great sales program. Their sales program actually kind of sucked. But like I was always trying to learn more myself and like, you know, buying coaching programs and education and talking to people. I can still do sales. I don't love it. Like I'd rather now hire salespeople and I've done that, but I can still do it and I can still manage salespeople. But it was such an important skill. And like for a young person listening to this, 20 something, you know, or maybe out of college, like, I still strongly recommend if someone wants to follow my path at all, like, you know, getting into real estate, trying to achieve financial freedom by an early age, like sales in a corporate job is an amazing vehicle out of college to then, you know, funnel money into a side hustle, being real estate, or just know that skill, and then you can apply it to other things. But 
I didn't understand the importance of the time. You know, sales is huge. Sales is selling your ideas, selling your concepts, you know, to your employees, to your vendors, you know, to your girlfriend, your whatever. Like it's so important. So it's communication, people skills. And I think that gets downplayed a little bit with like hard skills, but I found it to be incredibly valuable. So before we jump into real estate, which I think you had just mentioned happened a few years later, can we talk about income and expenses and investments during these early years? So you're 21, 22, 23, like straight out of college. It sounds like you're just like super money hungry. You're extremely determined. Like you're ready to give up your golf. You're ready to give up partying. You're just like, I want to make money. I'm going to be the CEO of this company. What were you making on the income front? What did your expenses look like? And what were you doing with the difference? Yeah, I was like a peasant. (laughs) I was living like so below my means. It's all connected, I guess. So I first got down there and it seemed like monopoly, fake money, because everything was so cheap from New York. Like I think my first, my starting salary in my first year was like 55K as an SDR. And I was like, this is just beyond incredible. In Raleigh, North Carolina, everything is cheap. And my first job out of college, 22, but I had the potential to make more like 70 or 75. I did a good job and I was always trying to do that. But I got down there and like my first taste of even for that time, like lifestyle creep was I rented an apartment. I think it was like for 900 bucks. It was a beautiful one bedroom. And I just felt like I was like bawling. And then I thought things through a little more. And then like very shortly after that, I got into like the real estate path, reading about it, listening, watching, talking to people. And I realized like I made a mistake. I shouldn't have like done that. I should have kept my expenses low. I have this income that I could use to buy properties. I didn't need to do that. Like I didn't need that to be happy. So within I think maybe six months, I found a sublet to take over mine. And then I wanted to do the strategy called house hacking where I could buy a house or a condo, rent out the other rooms, or I could buy it with like three or 5% and then rent out the other rooms. My roommates would pay the costs so I could live for free or make some money and then like really cooking. But yeah, I was not spending a lot of money at all. Like I wasn't the most social person at the time either. Like I really was focused. I would work. I'd come home. Like I was meal prepping. I wasn't doing a whole lot. Like I'd hang out. Like people would come over and just like, you know, hang. You know, I'd explore Raleigh, but like, again, it was like low cost. I was really just focused at the time. Yeah, I wasn't spending a lot of money. And uh, like, but again, I was embracing that and I was having fun with it because I was like, this is bigger than me right now. Like this is, I'm doing this for a purpose. I really do look back at that time. I was so mission driven that then when I hit financial freedom, I sort of lost that. Not that I like went into a depression or anything, but I definitely like got lazier. And I don't like that because at the time I was like working towards something and it was such a nice natural motivator. I always used to ask that question on my podcast too. Like, would you take the advice you gave to yourself then versus now? Or like now you've made it and you're doing like ice baths and like a three hour morning routine (laughs) and like meditating. But like at the time you were just like waking up and like eating shit and like that worked. Now this is like really fluffy. You know, and I think people forget that. I think that's another thing people make the mistake of. They listen to people's advice when they like made it. Whereas like that wasn't the actual advice that got them there. Anyway, total tangent. At the time, I was really living below my means. I was like every dollar compounded now is worth like five later on. Like, you know, delay gratification, all that. And uh, I was into it. I think that's something me and Cody actually talk about a lot is, you know, you don't have to do this insane grind forever. But if you will do it for just a few years in your 20s, it can set up this pathway for you to really take off in you know late 20s early 30s whatever it might be but just regardless of the age like doing that kind of upfront kind of like what you were alluding to if you could go back and do it again do you think you would do it so aggressively in the early years and what is your advice to other people who are in a similar situation we'll be right back after this overwhelmed by all the hats you wear in life listen in as eric fisher talks with productivity experts as they share how they implement practical productivity strategies in their personal and professional lives exploring all aspects of productivity and its true end goal, living a meaningful life, which is something we focus a ton on on the Fi Show. For more than a decade, Eric Fisher has sat down with productivity experts, authors, and creatives as they share their insights on how to implement productivity strategies in both your professional and personal life. The goal? To help you gain perspective, practical knowledge, and productivity insights for living a whole life that goes beyond the to-do list. Check out the incredibly engaging conversations with Eric and his guests every week, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Now back to the show. I hope this doesn't come off like a douche, but no, I really think I did it right. I actually think I did it right. I have plenty of regrets in life, but I really think that's one of the biggest mistakes young people make is like they flip the entire like equilibrium of this. They, they live way too big early and then they have to hamster wheel for a long time. Whereas if you could just sacrifice a little bit at the beginning, a little bit longer, then like you're cutting that hamster wheel way down and then you have way more time to just do whatever. But it's not cool. Like people get their first job out of college, car, house, like people buying their dream house that they're going to live in at like 26. To me, it's like couldn't be dumber for me, actually. Like many of my friends and they'll see my stuff, you know, non-entrepreneur like this world, they'll see my stuff and be like, you were talking about me. And I'm like, not you in mind, but like, yeah, like if you want my honest, like financially, that's like really dumb, but like, Hey, whatever floats your boat, you know, like have two kids, your dream house, dream car by 26, like, but just know you're going to work till you're like 70 and you can get laid off. Like, it's just different. Yeah. You know, whatever works for everybody. <laughs> I am totally agreeing with you. Cause I think we have a very similar path and I think from the time you discovered this whole thing, it sounds like you started discovering real estate around 22, like shortly after you got that job, you hit FI at 27. Let's start to fill in some of these gaps. This is a reason why Justin and I like to take it back to the beginning and talk about this stuff, because we could have just had you on and started asking you about how you're making tens of thousands of dollars a month at Airbnb. But like you said, like then you're just skipping all the most important parts, like the parts where you can relate to someone who doesn't have any Airbnbs, where you can relate to someone who's just getting started in their journey. So we love to cover that stuff. But yeah, let's kind of fill in some of those gaps between discovering real estate. What was that first step you took? Like what gave you the confidence to jump in? And what kind of, I don't know if you want to call it like a safety cushion, what did you have sitting in your bank account from this huge gap that you created? Not that much. <laughs> Again, everything in Raleigh was pretty cheap. And I was still down like the hard out path. I was reading a lot of personal development books, business development books. and like, you know, you read enough of them, you start to stumble then into like the investment fringes of it and start to learn about different things. Rich dad, poor dad, it's as cliche as it gets, but it was the one that did kind of open my eyes. And I was thinking, okay, is it going to be like vending machines or real estate or what's the other one? Like laundromats, like what is the thing? Like these are passive types of businesses and this is what it seems like people do. But I had a friend, he was like maybe a, a month ahead of me in this like path. And he's like, check out bigger pockets, did that. And then like beginner strategies, that's what I was looking at, how to get started. And I mentioned it, but the one that's still awesome, it was awesome then, house hacking. It's just great. You don't need a lot of money to do it. If you have a job, banks will give you a low money down loan to buy a primary. And that was like it. I just thought if I could buy a house hack every year, and then maybe one investment property a year that if I did that consistently for eight years, 22 years old to 30, like I should be done by 30. And then if some of these get paid off or they appreciate and I can pull out equity out of them, you know, the property appreciates, you paid a certain price and then whatever the difference in that appreciation, what you paid, like you can tap into that in different ways and buy other properties like Brandon Turner, one of the bigger pockets guys talks about it a lot. That's like snowballing. You can take equity out of the properties without selling them and you can pair that with the cash flow that they make and then you can buy more rentals and then it just starts to snowball. And that was a really cool concept to me. So pretty much like, you know, we could dig into as much as you want, but every year I would just try to do one of those. You're able to do one of those a year. And again, like it's not the most glamorous thing if somebody just makes that mistake, I guess, air quotes here, if someone's not watching, mistake of like having kids and getting married right after college, your wife and kids probably aren't going to want you to move every year. Like that's not that fun or easy with the family. But again, I was single. My view was always, I'll get the wife and the kid when I'm like financially ready. Cause like, I don't want to be poor when I have them. I want it to be good. So anyway, I did basically that every year for like four years, buy one house hack and then buy one investment that like set me on my path, you know, and I was still doing my corporate job, but I was just trying to make as much money as I could there to buy these rentals. And I didn't need a lot of money at the time. And you still don't, if someone's listening now and they're like, Oh, that was great in 2015 in Raleigh. 
you can't let that be your excuse. Like it's just not, you can find a place within probably 90 miles of anywhere, anyone listening to this right now and put less than $20,000 down on an investment property and rent out either the rooms or units and do that same strategy. And I know interest rates are higher and prices might be higher, but like still it's still doable. People do it every day. I see it in Facebook groups every day. People do it. So like it's possible, but that was for me how I got into the real estate world. Just tried to like keep building on it. And thinking about that first deal, was it kind of stress-free home run or did you have some big lessons learned and realize, oh, maybe I was kind of like uh, oversimplifying this a little bit and had to go and resharpen some things? I actually, I wish I had like a horror story for you on the first one. It was like a lukewarm temperature deal, (laughs) like not a home run, not great. Like it was great for what it was, which is like the learner deal, you know, like you can't do your second if you don't do your first and you don't want your first one to be a nightmare, but like, it's so easy to prevent it from being a nightmare that like anyone I think listening can prevent their first deal from being a nightmare with like maybe 10 hours of learning. You could learn it in a weekend. I think enough to like not have a nightmare, like just learn how to run basic numbers, learn like what basic expensive type CapEx items are like, you know, what you want to be a little careful of how to build your team with getting a broker. There's just very little risk when you're putting so little money down if you're going to have people paying the mortgage and paying the expenses. And that was it. So like that property, it it was stressful just because it was the first time doing it. And I didn't know what I was doing. But like, I got so much confidence in real estate because I saw so many people that weren't that smart doing it. I still believe that. I'm not that smart. Like sometimes someone will say to me like, oh, like you're really bright, you know, for doing this. I'm like, no, I'm really not. (laughs) Like this is simple math. Like this is addition and subtraction and like a little bit of multiplication. You don't need any like major like math skills. I mean, sure, being smart and being good at analyzing deals gets more important the bigger the deal. But like for a single family house, 10 numbers, you know, like it's super simple. So no, it was pretty safe. Like I was living for free. And then when I moved out, I turned it into a rental. That was the first time that it was like a little more stressful because it was like, all right, I need to learn about tenant management and contracts a little bit. Because like when I was doing the house hack the first year, it was just with my friends. And there can definitely be complications with that, but there really weren't. They just paid me. And I think we had leases, but they were like, whatever. And these were people I worked with. I think that helped too, because like it kept them from potentially acting nuts. Not that they ever had a reason to, but it was like, we worked in the same office. So everyone's on good behavior, but it really wasn't that stressful. And house hacking is not, it's not a lot of money. It's pretty insulated because people are paying your mortgage. You don't have that much to lose, honestly, with such a little down payment. So I want to dig into the strategy. I called it house hack hopping on Instagram and the real went like semi-viral doing exactly what you were talking about. But I just want to give listeners like the numbers and I want to dig into like how you actually tactically did it. So let's just say you buy a house hack, you're breaking even while you're living in it. This is for listeners. I'm going to try to do mental math, which sometimes works out in podcasts. We'll see. But let's pretend John is breaking even in that first deal. And then when he moves out, he's renting his room or his unit out for $1,000. After John does that five times and he's in his sixth house, he now has five properties that are bringing $1,000 each, $5,000. And he's house hacking in that sixth one. So he's rent free. So he's, he's making $5,000 a month in cash flow, $60,000 a year. Like that's all it takes, like literally five years. And that could replace like the average American salary, which is just mind boggling. And it's crazy that not more people do this. But to go back to my tactical question, John, were you doing like an FHA every time? Are you three and a half percent down? Did you have to venture into the traditional 5% down? Just want to kind of get more tactical for listeners out there. I did FHA the first time. And then I did it on the fourth one that I did. But the second and the third were just 5% down primary loans. So not much at all. What were the price ranges of these houses too? The fourth one was a lot. You know, it was, it was like 550,000, but the first three were under 200,000. So you're outlaying like what, 15 grand with closing costs and everything, right? Yeah, like, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're not talking big money here. And like, I get it also like, 15 grand isn't nothing for a beginner or someone that's like a young person that's just making their way. But like, it is like, it's, I mean, it's not a lot. You hustle in any capacity, you get a job like, and you live slightly below your means. I'm not even saying you need to be like 
a nut like I was, just a little below your means, you just need to be able to do this once a year. So if you can't save 15 grand a year in some side hustle or from like your job and cost of living difference, like evaluate that and look at where you have, you know, leaks in your boat. Like that could be a moment of self-reflection too, but we're not talking like a lot of money to do this, to get started. And did most of these investment properties have like a similar profile, like a quadplex or was it a house with four rooms? Was there some kind of quality about it or location that was really driving you towards these kind of deals? They were single families. And then the third, I was looking for like two, three or four unit because that's kind of like the home run if you could. But I couldn't find any and I wanted to just kind of keep going. The fourth one was a four unit. And that it was much higher price point. It was a bigger property. It felt like a bigger deal to me. But yeah, it was single families until then. And then after that, I was then thinking of a slightly different method that I also think people can try, which is an awesome like training wheels method where you just double the unit count of every purchase you buy. I think that's another effective one. Like there's different ways and just start. You don't need to like wait for the perfect one because on your 10th one, you'll look back very differently than your first. But like what I mean with that is year one, you buy a single family. Then two, you buy a two. Third year, you buy a four. Fourth year, you buy an eight. Fifth year, you buy a 16 unit. And like 10 years, you can really get into the big units. But what I like about that method is you become the person skill-wise to be able to handle that next thing. And after a while, it just becomes units. It's all the same, but it doesn't feel like, oh, wow, I'm trying to buy a 40 unit and I've never even done this before. Like that's moving a mountain. But if you've bought a 20 unit, then buying a 40 unit is not that much bigger or different, you know? So that's sort of then what I was trying to shift into. And I was looking at bigger units and like eight and 10 units after that. And I did end up buying an apartment building, but ultimately I did see higher potential cash flow in furnished rentals in 2019, end of 2018, 2019, and then 2020. And that was when I started to shift into that instead. But just wanted to throw that out there as like another potential like option for people that I think is really good and like a guaranteed path to like serious wealth without that much risk because you get the skills to do the next deal each time. I was going to ask the why behind the transition into short-term rentals because you have this great thing going. I mean, I just mathed it out for listeners. You can hit FI in like five years for the average American earning $60,000. It's crazy. So why transition into short-term rentals? It's a lot more work, a lot more headache. There's a lot more moving parts. What kind of finally swung the needle? You know, it's funny how the mind works. Like, I can't speak for everyone. Like, I just wanted more. I didn't even know why, but I just wanted more and I wanted it faster. And I felt like I saw an opportunity that I thought might lead to it happening faster. And I guess I was impatient, but I just was doing math one day of like, okay, if I keep on this path, am I still on track? How long is it going to take me? I was like running into one hurdle that I saw coming up, which was you do run out of loans that you can get for residential properties after either a certain like number of properties or a dollar amount, depending on how much you make. And I was getting ready to run into that for me. So I was thinking if I only have a few of these left, what would be the best way to maximize these? And I don't really even remember how I got into like short-term rentals. I really should go back and like look at this, but I just did. I just started thinking, oh, no, no. I mean, I, I've conceptually know why, but I was just thinking, what are the ways to do this faster? And I was like in a multifamily. I thought that was going to be the way, but then I actually found out that like the way that most people do multifamily, it's really not lucrative for a long time until it becomes very lucrative, but it just, it was very slow and a lot of work. I started flipping some houses and I realized like I didn't like that. It was a lot of unforeseen issues that like, unless you, I had felt like I had scale, I couldn't, you know, optimize. But um, the STR world, I saw a few people doing it that were making really good money and they didn't have to have that many units. So I kind of then looked at it like for right or wrong, they could have one unit making as much as five traditional rentals. So it's only one thing to worry about. Now, granted, the operations, to your point, can be a lot harder exponentially, but I looked at it like it was just one property that could generate as much. So 
I bought one that I found randomly. It was in an area that I used to go to a lot and it was actually a property listed for rent. And I just took a flyer. I just reached out to the owner and said, I know it's listed for rent, but would you ever consider selling it? And he said, yeah. And we just worked out an off-market deal, which is great. And still for people listening to this, you can find off-market deals by just hitting people up that they're listing their property for rent, especially if it's on market for rent for a long time, they're not getting any bites. Like that property is like a problem for them now. Like that's something that they don't like looking at every day. But anyway, and that first property was tiny, but it made as much as the four other rentals that I had at the time. And I was like, this is kind of nuts. Or the other five rentals rather. I had one more, but I sold it. But basically I was like, this is making, you know, as much as them combined. And it was tiny. So I was like, I think I can double down on this and try to do it, you know, at a little bit of a scale. So I thought it was a better use of the loans. And I just saw that like it was an opportunity to speed up leaving my job. I also got a new manager at that job and I didn't like that person so much. So it kind of like was a little bit more motivation. And if you had all these previous houses where you're renting out different rooms, different units, and now you add on the short-term rental, it does start to feel like the management piece is, you know, yeah, sure, you're financially independent, but now you've created this other job because now you've got so much management to handle. How did you handle that? How did you make it efficient? I read 4-Hour Workweek twice in my life. Once when I was first starting in corporate and it had like no impact on me. And then I read it around this time again, and it had a huge impact on me. It's just funny how you could read books at different times in life and they can impact you so differently. That was like a kick in the ass to try virtual assistance and to try getting help with managing the properties. I was doing it myself, like with someone that I met that was just like a helper, an American person. But then I thought there had to be a way that virtual assistants could do this. And I started getting experience with virtual assistants because I had a podcast like like this and I was getting help with the editing. I just found someone on Upwork and they were great. And I started getting help with other things like deal analysis and cold calling. So I thought Airbnb property management could be another thing for them. And it was, and it's not perfect. They're in the Philippines and some things at the property need to happen in person and you need to have people in person that can help. But for a lot of the back end things, it like very quickly took a big lift off the operational burden of like messaging and pricing and just like being on call. That gave me a lot of confidence to keep going with it. You know, I didn't feel like it was such a brutal like management responsibility because I never was pulled into it that much. And, you know, like the way that it worked with people in the Philippines, some people would work, you know, what would be our daytime, which is their nighttime. And then others would happily work their daytime, which is our nighttime to be on call, you know, if things happen in the middle of the night, which very rarely does happen, but you know, once in a while, but that was what gave me the confidence and like was how I was able to not have to lose like my quality of life while I was doing this. Did you have some kind of doc that people could work off of? So you could just like basically hand this to anyone and they know this is exactly how I respond to this question. This is how I schedule the cleaners. This is how I do this. This is how I do that. Yeah, I did it and slowly just got more into like processes and systems. I'm trying to think which books like impacted me the most with that, but the E-Myth was really important, Michael Gerber, and then also Built to Sell, another one, great books that just, yeah, they impacted me a lot, helped me like realize how much I needed to get what I knew into a process, then give that process to other people. And that just became like something that still we use every day in the business, just like an SOP table that we house in Notion. So it's like, there's like a hundred and something SOPs in it now, but it's basically just like every process that I was doing, I would just, even if I didn't know like the full process, I would just screen share it. And then someone would come in later and make a bulleted list of it. And that way other people could kind of just step in and do things. There's always still things that pop up that people aren't sure to find, but that was a good way to like start building a library of random things that pop up in the business and how to do them. And now it's like kind of the backbone of how everything runs, just having something like that. And we're talking about a lot of this stuff as this thing that happened, this kind of like in the past, but are you still like looking for deals? Are you still buying real estate? Is this still something you're growing? It is. What's today? In like two weeks, 
We'll have another property going live in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm a little torn at the moment of like what to do next because we've had some good success with our like midterm rentals, which is like 30 night minimums. I do think there's still a good opportunity with short-term rentals, nightly rentals. I started another business this past year that has taken a little bit of my time, which like I didn't like. And now I'm kind of backing out of it back into like the actual real estate stuff, which I think I like the most where we were finding deals for people like as a service and like a product. So if anyone is looking for help finding deals, I I do feel really good about what that product like became and uh, we find deals for people now. But yeah, I bought an apartment building with two investors last year. It was a 24 unit in Kentucky. And that's also Cody, how I met Rachel Richards. Like I lived in Kentucky for a little while and got connected with her. I sort of now break what I'm doing into like seasons. So I was telling Cody a little bit before this, I do six months in New York and six months in Medellin. And I decided that I wanted to set it up in a way that like the six months in Columbia are like my sort of like work months, more of like almost a school year. And then the summer months are kind of like lighter for me where I'll do more golf, like tournament golf. I still love that. I I wanted things to happen in the background, but I also didn't like need things to scale as much. So, you know, we'll stand this property up. And like, I just had a call with someone last week back in Kentucky that we're looking for more apartment buildings and probably get going there again. I don't know. I think when I get back to Medellin in October, I'll like, you know, really sink back into stuff, but I'm still involved in what we're doing with like property optimization and that product launch, which took a while, but now is going and, you know, that was a lot of fun. So yeah, still acquiring. It's just like, coming back more into like the busy season, I guess. And I'll do out of country acquisitions, which is another thing that like I never thought I'd be doing. But when I get back to Columbia, we'll be buying stuff in the US. You know, I do that more than when I'm in the US, like in the summer months. So as a guy who takes off six months of the year, who golfs six days a week, we haven't even let you brag about yourself. I want to let you brag a little bit, John, because from kind of where we ended off, like you would get in those long-term properties. Then like we talked about your transition in Airbnb a bit. Could you talk about the big flashy numbers? Like what is your portfolio looking like today? How much money are these things bringing in? So right now I have eight units, the six furniture rental units and two traditional, and then the 24 units. Month to month, it's anywhere from 15 to 25K. I would say on average in like revenue. And then in profit, it's anywhere from, I would say like, 15 to 17 K. And then the digital products, happy to talk about that as well. Also, cause like I had a little bit of a learning curve with it. Like I did a coaching program last year and it was very lucrative. And I see why people do it sort of like instead of the actual business that they teach about. But for me, I just actually didn't like it. It was like, you know, a high ticket coaching program is 5k. We would kind of do everything for the person, like find the deal build out the team, introduce them to the brokers, the lenders, you know, help set up the financing, help set them up with their virtual assistant. I just didn't like it. Like it was another, I felt like distraction from the actual real estate business. It was on my mind constantly, like not in a good way. I just felt like if people gave me this much money, I had to like really over deliver for them. But that business, it did close to seven figures last year. But again, I just didn't like it. Like I realized I don't want to be Grant Cardone. I don't need as, you know, a ton of money. I'm happy to just keep seeing things go up, but I don't need to like, you know, make money if I'm feel like I'm sacrificing my peace of mind. So stop doing that. And then the deal finding service, that's been fun because it's a product. So it's a little bit more scalable. It's 400 bucks a year subscription model. And we'll find deals for people to get access to all of our tools, all of our brokers now. So we kind of took the parts of it that were like, you know, scalable from the coaching business and just took those, stripped it out and turned it into this. I would say we mostly do that via ads and webinars. And that's right now doing a little over like 200K a year in revenue ARR, but it's growing. I'm more excited anytime we make money with that because it's reoccurring, you know, even if we lose subscribers. And then the other thing that was like the start of that, kind of like backing into it was, I did a newsletter for a while and it was just deals that our team found. We would send it out for free. And now we started to monetize that with sponsors, which I don't think I'm actually going to end up liking. But for now, it's been a way that we've made an additional like 
maybe five to $7,000 a month just for someone placing an ad spot on a newsletter and then like some Instagram reels. But it's like client management, which I don't like at all, like refilming stuff and like getting the copy like just right. Like it sort of feels like having a boss a little bit. But yeah, that's what it is. You know, I'm like obsessed with golf. I just love to play golf. It's like a true addiction of mine. In the summer months, you know, I definitely still work. I actually next year, I want to set it up that I'm actually off. Like you said that. But like this year, I felt like I was pulled into things because we were starting some new things. But I feel like next year, when everything's established, I can really just like, I want to check my like computer, maybe like a few hours a week tops, maybe like two or three hours. This year, I work, I don't know, maybe four or five hours every day in the mornings. And then I play golf in the afternoons, unless I have a tournament, you know, but that's kind of how I do it. Well, Jonathan, you've got like so many different things going on. And I love how you just kind of humbly talk through it and bounce like, oh, yeah. And then there's this and there's that. Like you've got so many awesome things going on. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who'd be interested in some of the things that you're talking about and just getting to follow on with inevitably whatever it is that you do next. So where is the best place for listeners to go and follow along with you, reach out to you, that sort of thing? My socials, it's all the same handle, just John J. Farb, J-O-N-J-F-A-R-B. You could DM me there, like the ebbs and flows. I was about to say YouTube. I actually just decided I'm stopping doing YouTube because I don't like it. And it was annoying, really like time intensive and it wasn't yielding much. So don't go there. I mean, there's still a lot of good content actually like archived on there, but there's nothing new coming. Sorry. That's the main thing. Or if you just look up deals done for you, that's our free deal finding service. And if you want like a more premium version of that, we have premium deals done for you really, you know, creative. (laughs) That's what we're doing. We don't, you know, do coaching anymore. We'll make content based on questions. So if anyone drops comments or DMs me with like a question, I will make content about it or tweet about it to answer those questions. Those are the main ways. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Don't email me. That's not a good way. And content. Those are easy ways. Sounds good. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Everybody go follow John because he does have a wealth of good stuff if you're interested in real estate, specifically Airbnbs, setting up VAs. I love seeing your stuff on building systems because I'm a huge systems guy. And just seeing you live it, dude. Like I see you every day in your store. You're playing golf or you're in Medellin, Colombia. Like (laughs) you're actually living the stuff, which is awesome. And you're, like Justin said, super humble about it. We waited till the last five minutes to tell us about your like seven figures of other revenue (laughs) other than what we talked about. So you guys are awesome. Thanks for having me. And yeah, look forward to talking more. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.